If you want to follow along in the scripture that we're reading today, it's Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 on down through 33. So Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, continuing our series here on Ephesians. We're going to be a few more weeks in that. Pastor Mark is going to wrap that up here sometime in the middle of next month. So Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Uh, so I cannot think of too many passages in the Bible that I would rather not preach out of. This is one of them. And I'm pretty sure Pastor Mark did it on purpose. You see, he sets the preaching schedule. And he's gone this week. And he said, Josh, why don't you go ahead and preach on husbands and wives having 10 years of marital experience in a crowd of people that have twice the marital experience as you. You preach on that. Oh, and the next week you can preach on slavery. So next week is going to be even worse for me. But let's just stick one week at a time here. So this passage here is a difficult one that, that we get into, especially as, as modern readers of the Bible. We have a hard time when we read it because we do have a different view on marriage than maybe what they had 2,000 years ago. And I'll give you an example of, of how it can be a, a little maybe difficult. A few years ago, when uh, actually about five or six years ago now, when we were doing ministry down in Kentucky, we were at this small church in Frankfort, Kentucky, and we would do a Sunday night ministry for kids. And there was this one couple in the church that they were just, they, they were there for every service. They were, they were just great members of the church. But what was funny about their relationship was that uh, he was like a biker, uh, and, and he had the leather vest, the leather chaps. Uh, he put together a riding circuit with other Christian bikers in the community, and, and they would spend their Sunday afternoons just riding all around the, the land there. And so he would walk in on Sunday evenings with his biker outfit. Sometimes his bike would be parked out in front of the church, and his hair would be all messed up. And, and you know, he was just one of those guys that would walk in, and, and you just knew he was a biker. And then he was married to this lady, Minnie, uh, who was just this, this sweet little lady in our church, and, and she had a degree in theology. And she was one of those ladies 
in the church who I knew knew more about the Bible than I did. You know, here I am going through seminary learning how to be a pastor, and she was the kind of lady that before I would preach in service, I'd walk up and say, hey, Minnie, hey, what does that mean? And she would tell me, and she would say, oh, well, that's, you know, this or that, and that's connected to this passage. Okay, okay, I got it right. Thank you, Minnie. So she, she was somebody that I was always nervous to preach in front of. And so here you had this biker and a little theologian that were married together. And one evening they walked into the church, and, and they were kind of arguing, not like an actual argument, but they were going back and forth. And, and Dave said, Pastor, can you settle something for us? Does it say in the Bible that a wife should submit to her husband? <laughs> Dave, it, it says that in Ephesians, in 1 Peter, in another passage, I believe in Timothy. Uh, it, it does say that. And then he turned to his wife and said, See, Minnie, the Bible says you have to submit to me. And she said, Dave, I don't know how to make a peanut butter pie. I can't submit to you if I don't even know how to make it. As it turned out, he didn't know how to cook. He, he thought she knew how to make it, and he thought she was just being stubborn and wouldn't make him food that he wanted. So that's why I think this passage can be a little difficult because we, we can kind of go into it with our modern ears and our modern understanding of what a marriage should look like. But the problem is, is when we do that, we're bringing our own sinful nature into the scripture and saying, see, see, it says, it says that you're supposed to submit to me. And then a wife can also shoot back and say, well, hey, it also says you're supposed to be sacrificial. Where's your sacrifice? Do you see the problem there? All of a sudden, we, we take the word of God and we begin to use it as a way. <laughs> Somebody just pointed at their spouse. I won't say who. But we can take the Bible and start to use it as a weapon against one another instead of using it as a form of encouragement to one another. So here's what I'd like to do with the scripture that we have before us today is I'd like us to take it and first of all look at it, I believe, in how Paul meant for us to first and foremost read it, and that is as a relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. So if we can read this passage as Jesus and his church, we can then move into how does this apply to our Christian families at home? How does this apply to our relationship with our spouse? Because he even says towards the end of this passage, after he sums everything up, notice what he says. He says, this is a great mystery, but I'm not talking about a man and his wife. I'm talking about Jesus and the church. So let's first of all look at what is the relationship that Jesus has with his church. Well, Paul says that this, re and, and on the slides there, if you could just put all of those up at the same time, I'm going to bounce around. If not, see what you can do. Uh, but we have those inserts here in the bulletin, so we should be fine. Um, so Paul, first of all, he's talking about this relationship that Jesus has with his church. In that relationship, he lists all sorts of aspects that Jesus fulfills to us, his people. He's head of the body, he's savior of the church, he loves her, and he's one with her. 
And I'm going to bounce around this list here and sort of sum up what Paul is saying about this relationship. First of all, that first and last one there, Jesus is head of the body and he's also one with his body. So we see this kind of analogy uh, when it comes to Jesus and the church. We see it primarily in this passage, but then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We see a passage where Paul talks about how we are the body, but Jesus is the head. Now, why would Paul go ahead and say that? Why would he distinguish between the body, neck and below, and the head, neck and above? Well, it's very simple. What part of your body decides what the rest of the body is going to do? The brain. The brain makes all of the decisions. And it makes all of the decisions so quickly and so fast that you actually don't even have to think of the decision that you're going to make. You have motor skills that, that if a fly is by your head, you don't have to think in your mind, I need to raise my right hand, I need to spread my fingers, and I need to swat at that fly and get it out of my face. No, your body just instinctively goes after it because your brain tells it to. And so Paul says, we are like the body, the neck down. We do things for Jesus, but only when he tells us to do those things. And in this passage specifically, Paul is driving at the point that we have a oneness with Jesus Christ. And, and it's really interesting because uh, uh, one of the... One of the uh, what am I trying to say here? One of the uh, topics that we studied back in college was uh, neuropsychology. And before you're impressed that I said that word, I got a C-plus by the grace of God. So <laughs> there was a book that we had in that class that we had to read uh, called Philosophical Foundations of Neuroscience. It is as exciting as the title sounds. But I remember there was a portion of that book that I actually did remember, and it was that we have a fallacy in our thinking of the body, we tend to think that, that we have a body and that we have a head. And it said, if you're going to understand the science of the body, you actually have to understand that the head is not any different than the rest of the body. And each part of your body may be specified, but it is not separate from the rest. You have neurons and nerve endings and all sorts of stuff that travel from the rest of your body up to your head. And so your body obviously cannot live without your head, but your head cannot live without your body. And so when Paul makes this last point that he is one with his body, that's directly tied to him being head of the body. There is a mysterious union that Jesus has with us, the church, he may be the head, he may be telling us what we're supposed to do, and we may be doing it, but he is directly connected with us. To give you an idea of maybe how this plays out, and this sort of goes into what it talks about, about uh, Christ sanctifying the church, if Jesus is the head of the body and we are the body of Jesus, okay, it's sort of like uh, when, when an athlete is getting ready for a competition. The athlete is going to take a look at his body and say, I need to work on this. I need to get in shape. I need to lift some weights. I need to go on a diet. I need to get my body ready for the task at hand. 
Likewise, Jesus' connection to us as a church is not, okay, listen to me, it's not you need to get your act together. You guys aren't good enough for me. You need to fix yourself. Rather, Jesus looks at his church and says, I have some work to do. Jesus looks at the church much like we look at our own bodies and say, oh man, what is going on here? And he looks at it and says, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to cherish this. I'm going to take care of this. Because he's not separated from us. He's, he's intimately involved with us as his people. And Paul even says, I don't know how this works. Paul says, this is a mystery. I'm, I don't know what else to say except that Jesus has brought us in so that he is one with us and fixes us. And so we submit to him. But then what's more about that is Jesus is not just the head and he's not just one with us as the body, but he's also savior to the church. And what that simply means is we were on a path headed towards death. We were on a path of sin and we were going to die. We were already spiritually dead, but we were also headed down a road towards hell that would be eternal death. And what Jesus did is while we were on that road in our sin, he stopped us and offered us the opportunity to be a part of his body. He offered us the forgiveness of sins, but then he also offered us the strength of sinning no more. And so he brought us into his body and saved us. He rescued us from death. The best analogy that I think scripture can give us is if you go back to Exodus, When God's people were slaves to the country of Egypt, it was God who rescued them from slavery. He brought them out from a a position of death, a position where they were doing work for the Egyptian authorities, and they were doing it so that they could die. Egypt put them in slavery so that they could get rid of the Jewish people. But God rescued them. And as you look throughout the Old Testament over and over again, as God reminds his people of their salvation, he says, I am the God that brought you up from the land of Egypt and brought you into a land flowing with milk and honey. God reminds his people over and over of this. And what Paul says is we as Christians are the same. We've been brought into that salvation that has rescued us from death, forgiven us of our sins, has given us the power over sin and death, and now we have life. So there's a oneness that we have with Jesus. There's also a recognition that he is our Savior. And this is all because he loves us. Jesus loves you. I, I, I don't know how, how many times we have to say that before we actually believe it, that Jesus loves you unconditionally. You didn't do anything to deserve that love. It's just like when a mother holds her baby. There's a love there. There's a connection that happens where there's just intense love. That baby didn't do anything to deserve that love. I know because I've held three of my own. But God holds us and loves us, and he's brought us into that family. So there's this unconditional love that he has, but how he's demonstrated that love for us is he's made sacrifices for us. We just got out of the Christmas season, 
And what was the Christmas season about? It was about Jesus' sacrifice of leaving heaven, of leaving his intimate relationship with God the Father so that he could come down to earth and become one of us. That is a heavy sacrifice that he made because when he looked down at us, he said, I love them so much, I want to be one of them so I can save them all. So God has, has sacrificed for us. And, and what's more is that Jesus lived in his, in his life, this, this holy life that was pointed towards what? The cross. So not only did Jesus sacrifice life with God in heaven, but then when he became a man, he was sacrificing his actual life to die on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. We deserve to die on the cross. Jesus didn't. But he looked at the church, he looked at his people and said, I don't want them to have to go through that, so I will make the sacrifice on my own. That's how much I love her. And what's more, and we talked a little bit about this with with us being a part of the body of Christ, is Jesus has cleansed us. And and, uh, how Paul puts it is that uh, he has cleansed us in order to present herself to him, And a lot of this language that he's using here is very much uh, old ceremonial language when it comes to the wedding day between a husband and a wife. Um, a wife couldn't just show up to the wedding day. A wife had to go through ceremonial cleansings in order to arrive to that day. And so what Paul says is, it, it's not like we had to show up like a bride on her wedding day and get everything set. No, rather it was that, it, it was that, We needed everything, and Jesus said, I will help you with everything you need. I'm not going to sit and wait for you to get ready to be my bride. I'm going to help you with everything you need so you can be my bride today. So it says that, that he has prepared the church to be presented to him. He's cleansed her. He is, he is working on her. And so we have this relationship with Jesus as the church where he is one with us. He takes care of us. He prepares us. He cleanses us. And all of this is motivated by the love, the deep, deep love that he has for us. So that's Jesus' relationship to us. Let's take a look at what the church's relationship is to Jesus. It's, It's a very simple relationship Submission. It, it, it's really interesting how Paul spends most of this passage talking about Jesus and all of the things that he has done for us. All of the ways that he has a relationship with us. And then he says, oh, and by the way, church, this is what you have to do to be in a relationship with Jesus. Just do what he says. <laughs> Just when he says sacrifice this or that, sacrifice it. When he says this is the best decision for your church, follow what he says. When Jesus says to you, I love you, believe him. Don't fight with him about it. It's not a good idea. I don't recommend anybody fight with Jesus. Yeah, you don't win for one. You're already in a losing position, but then uh, when we are in this relationship with Jesus, we have every reason to believe that 
he takes care of us. We have every reason to believe that he watches over us. And so it's like being in a good relationship with a good friend where you know you can say anything and they're not going to leave you. Only that relationship is even deeper with Jesus that, that he guides us and, and he fixes us. He takes care of us. He gives us everything that we need. So Paul says that that's all you got to do in this relationship. That's all you got to do is show up and do what he says and he'll take care of you. That's probably the easiest side of any relationship is to be taken care of. So this is the relationship that Paul says is between Jesus and the church, and then he goes on to apply this to the Christian family. He goes on to apply this to what a husband and wife's relationship would look like, and he sums it up in the last verse. And his summary is is really interesting because he spends several verses expounding on the relationship of Jesus and the relationship of the church and everything that that Jesus has done for her and, and the only thing that the church needs to do. And then he sums up the Christian marriage actually in a really pithy way, a really small, uh, I don't want to say insignificant because it is the word of God, but comparatively, it's really not much. He says, in your Christian marriage, Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And remember what I said earlier about making sure that that we don't take our problems and then read them into the passage. Let's not take our modern view and then read it into the passage because then we take uh, all of the fault-finding issues that we have and then we start to read it and say, see, look, you've got to do this or that. So how do we come to this passage and read it correctly? Well, first of all, uh, and I already said it, but I want to expound on it just a little bit more. First of all, don't bring into this relationship all of the bad relationships that you've experienced. See, that's actually one of the problems that we can have in marriages, is, is, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but you've got problems. And I don't know if you heard this or not, but your spouse has problems too. Nobody said amen after that one. <laughs> we come into a marriage imperfect. We come into a marriage with baggage, with issues. And one of the problems that we do have in marriage, and, and this is uh, social sciences have found this just through research and studying. Counselors will say this. Sometimes we enter into a relationship and we think it's the other person's responsibility to fix the problems that we have. And so we enter into the relationship willingly uh, putting our problems onto the other person, thinking they can handle it, not realizing that they've also entered into the relationship, hoping that you would fix their problems. And so the problem with that is if you take that and try to apply it to Scripture, here's what you end up having. You end up having a husband that looks at his wife and says, the Bible says you have to submit. So I'm making a really bad decision for our family and you're going to go along with it and when it blows up in our faces, I need you to pick up the broken pieces. Does that sound like maybe something you've been through once or twice? Or sometimes a, a wife can enter into the relationship 
And she, and, and she can say, well, it would be easier to respect you if there's anything respectable about you. <laughs> By the way, this has never been said in my marriage. But we can walk into that, that marriage arrangement and we can take the scripture and then say, well, this is what the scripture says and we can, can begin to use it as a weapon. But what does Paul assume about, about our readers here today, us, that we're Christian? He assumes that we're already in a loving relationship with one another. He already assumes that Jesus Christ is the center of our relationship just individually, and then he already assumes that in the marriage relationship, Christ is the center. And so he already assumes that, that we are submitting to one another as unto the Lord, as, as the previous verse said. We talked about that last week. We're all called to submit to one another. But then we're all called to love one another. We're all called to have sacrificial love for one another. So how do we apply this to our families here today. Very simply, wives, let your husband lead. Let him make the decisions. Husbands, love your wives. Be sacrificial. Listen to her. Let her have an opinion on things. The authority that men have in a relationship is not meant to be a dictator. It's not meant to be a strong CEO that has the company under control. No, it's meant to be like what Christ is to the church. I cherish and I love my wife and I want to take care of her. Could you imagine trying to go to Jesus with your needs and Jesus saying, you don't need that? I mean, sometimes he says it, but it's certainly in a loving tone. It's certainly in a way that has our best interest in mind. And so when, when we go to each other in our marriages, what Paul is pointing out is, wives, it's okay to submit to your husband and let him make decisions and to let him be responsible for the decisions that are made in the household. You are there to encourage him and get along with him. Husbands, love your wives unconditionally. Don't have any fault-finding. In fact, if you need a good reference, husbands, on what it means to love your wives, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul gives a great uh, exhortation on what love means, and here's the best way to read that. Go to that passage and insert your name wherever it says the word love and see how well you do. I haven't passed the test yet, by the way. So Paul is saying that's what kind of relationship you're supposed to have. And it's very interesting because when you begin to have this kind of relationship that's Christ-centered, that, that, that has this submission and respect and love in the middle of it, you will actually find you're having a good Christian marriage with a good Christian outcome. And what's really interesting is this isn't the only passage where, where the scriptures talk about what it means for a husband to love his wife and a wife to submit to her husband. If you go to 1 Peter, Peter talks about how important it is for wives to submit to their husbands, but do you know what his reasoning is? He assumes that their husbands aren't attending church, and he says if you submit to them, they may convert and believe in Jesus Christ. That's a good reason. 
And whenever it's talked about for husbands to love their wives, it's always in relationship to how sacrificial Jesus' love was for his church. Dave Ramsey has a, uh, a radio program. I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but he's a personal finance guy that, that does a radio show every day, and, and he gives uh, financial advice for families. And if you listen to his radio show, it, it's kind of funny because, um, because people will call in, and sometimes they have questions that, that really help you out. You know, they'll have a question, and they'll say things like APR and IRS and, you know, alphabet soup words, you know, and, and he'll be able to break it down, and you listen to it, and you go, oh, I never thought about that. We should do that in our family, too, with finances. But then sometimes people will call in and have a question that you're like, oh, man, how is this person still alive, you know? Uh, and, and very interestingly, he had one person call in, and, and he was talking about how important it was in their family to be debt-free, and, and he called in and he said, my wife and I have been married for a few years and, and uh, our goal is to be debt-free. We have this much that we still have to pay on some credit cards and student loans. Um, and here, here's the problem we're running into. We're in an apartment. He said, the apartment is just fine. It's, it's a one-bedroom and, and it takes care of all of our needs and it's a really good rental price. But my wife wants to buy a house. And I'm trying to convince her that, that if we buy that house, we won't be able to get out of debt as fast. So, so he said, would you help me convince my wife not to buy a house? Remember what I said, sometimes you got questions that are easy to answer. Uh, and, and Dave's answer was really interesting because he's also somebody that, that if you try to take out a loan, he will just yell at you. And I've heard them do it. People will call in and say, I've got $50,000 of debt and I just took out a loan on a truck. And, and he'll shout at them and say, sell the truck, get out of debt, don't ever call back. And, uh, and so when this man said, would you help me convince my wife that we don't need a house? He said, listen, he said, I, I, I know your intentions. He said, your, your intentions are that you guys are going to get out of debt. And, and you know, and, and he said, I, I'm with you. He said, I, I, I get it, I get it. But he said, you need to understand something. Men don't need a fancy place to live. He said, all, he said I get it. You and I, I could live in an apartment and if it had a sink and a toilet, I'd be just fine. He said, you know what? Most women don't live that way. And the guy started to laugh on the other line. He said, I, I think you need to go back and you need to sacrifice he said, you need to sacrifice your dream of getting out of debt earlier. It's okay to take out a mortgage. Go talk to your wife. Let her know that you want to buy a home with her. He said, trust me, in the long run, this is going to be so good for your relationship in the household. You don't, and, and this is almost how he ended it. You don't have to win one. See, marriage isn't a competition. It's, we weren't brought into a relationship with one another to compete, to try to have ownership over the other. Instead, we were brought into this relationship for mutual love and mutual submission to one another. And so after we go through this passage and, and we see the love of Christ and what he's done for us, and then we stop and realize, you know what, if he's done all of this for us, surely I can submit myself to him and we can have a great relationship, him and I. If that's the relationship Jesus has with his church, 
Why wouldn't we want that in our own marriages? Why wouldn't we want that same kind of relationship with one another? So that's the calling that we have today, to, to bring that relationship that Jesus has with his people into our marriages and let it work. Let Jesus work on what we're doing with one another. Let's pray. God, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for opening up your word to us. Thank you, God, especially for the relationship that you have with us. Like, like a husband that loves his wife, uh, we thank you for the sacrifice that we've made, you've made, the, the love that you've shown us, that you've bestowed on us. Likewise, Lord, uh, teach us to be submissive to you. Teach us to, to go to you and trust in you. Uh, teach us, Lord, to, to come to you and to know that you have all of our needs in mind. And Lord, if you would, I pray over all of the marriages here today, all of the marriages that will be here someday, all of those that are looking towards marriage in their future, Lord, I pray that that relationship would be in all of the marriages here, that there would be this love and respect towards one another, that you would somehow work in husbands and wives in their relationship. Lord, we know you can do it that you will. Amen.